We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week on the 5th Garage Beers Podcast. The NFL Draft, just less than a week ago, we're going to cover what the Browns did. Did they do enough? Did they fill the holes? What grade did you, the fans, give the Browns? We've got a very, very special guest who is going to break down all of that, plus talk about his days as a Cleveland Brown. And we're going to talk about one of the most heartbreaking memories in Cleveland sports history that was replayed on ESPN this week. The shot by Michael Jordan. We got all that. And we're going to wrap a little Dr. Seuss. Come on down the driveway. Come on into the garage. Pull up a lawn chair. Crack open your favorite brew. And join us on Garage Beers. All right, hello everybody and welcome to the fifth episode of the Garage Beers podcast. I am Michael Keefe, once again, not in a garage, sitting here in my basement over here on the west side of Cleveland, getting ready for what promises to be one crazy fun episode of the Garage Beers podcast. We've got a very special guest coming up, but before we get to that, as always, here on the Garage Beers podcast, I am joined I'm a main man over there on the east side of Cleveland, the only one dedicated enough to sit in his garage every week. Chad Meyer, how's the garage this week? Yeah, it's a beautiful night in the garage. Obviously, Mike wouldn't know that. He'll never know that because he won't get in the garage and own up to the damn name of the show. But <laughs> it's a beautiful night in the garage. You should uh, you should be out here. It's warm. It's friendly. I don't know whether it's the garbage I haven't taken out yet, or maybe there's a gas leak in here, but I am feeling buzzing, boys. <laughs> how many? Well, I don't know how many pre-garage beer, garage beers you've had, but uh, you know, you finally got it. That was two really cold weeks in a row the last couple of weeks. So you finally got a nice one. So I hope you're enjoying that out there, Chad. Yeah, you bet your sweet took us I am. I'm in shorts <laughs> for God's sake. Oh, you're one of those guys? What? Shorts? You know, like shorts, real or like too early shorts guy? No, 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 not too early shorts guy. But if it's warm enough, you bet your ass I'm in shorts. That's what I'm most comfortable <laughs> in. If I, if I didn't have to wear pants ever, I wouldn't. Wait. Shorts. I would wear what? shorts. Like, like, oh, God. Like, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go, <laughs> pan, like I wouldn't go pantsless, you know? Would you, though? Uh, well, yeah, of course I would. Who would. We're going streaking. Yeah. To the quad to the gymnasium. <laughs> so Chad's over there, we think, with some lower body covering, hopefully. 
and down in Nashville, Tennessee, Joey Whalen. What's going on, Joe? How is life in Nashville right now? Oh, life is beautiful. What's up, everybody? Um, you know, it's weird because I feel this is what the fifth episode now, yeah. which is crazy. I've been doing this for almost over a month now. Um, I still have yet to get a sustainable chair to sit in. I'm sitting on a drum stool. And while we're doing like our interviews with these guests, I am like frantically pacing across my room because I can no longer sit in this drum stool. So I am immediately investing in a chair and uh, hopefully going to get my back straightened out. But we're having a good time down here. Craigslist yourself a gaming chair. You'll never want to leave. Oh, no. Get one with those like uh, recliner seats that come up and take a nap. Yeah, you won't even leave your. You won't even go in your bed. You'll just sleep in that damn thing. <laughs> yeah, editing you do. <laughs> well, again, we got a great show. The NFL draft was this week. I think by all accounts, uh, the Browns here in Cleveland killed it. Uh, I think a couple teams killed it, really. But uh, uh, a very fun, uh, a draft that I enjoyed more than I thought I was going to. The virtual draft. I like the setting of the stage and walking across the stage and all the fanfare that comes with it. But I really think the NFL and I'm going to give him props. I think Roger Goodell was spectacular during it. He was funny. He, he got booed. He had his, yeah, he got booed. He had his weird jar of M&Ms that he just demolished like a thousand M&Ms. He just went through in three nights, Uh, uh, (laughs) but it was fun. So it's time for us, as always. We always kick off our show with our Garage Beers of the Week, and we, we left it up to you as we do, and we're going to do most weeks. We asked you... Before we move on from that, before oh, we introduce on, our on. Garage Beers of the Week, you mentioned Goodell. That was... <laughs> I loved... Okay, I loved, the, I loved the draft, too. I thought everything went perfectly, but I, I just felt so awkward because... <laughs> The interactions like he had with the fans were so fake. <laughs> like, 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 like he didn't give a shit. Like he turned around, he's like, uh, "Come on, Brown, come on, Browns fans!" And then he would turn around and be like, "Oh, with oh, you're there. Hi, camera. How long have you been there?" <laughs> then he goes with the tenth pick, and the, and then it, it's I don't know. Like I felt like I felt like he was just slowly descending into something hilarious. Like you know, in the second and third round. He was standing for part of the second. Then he like ended up in his like cozy sleeping, like napping chair with his, with his M&Ms next to him. Like, I felt like, I felt like if he was going to, I felt like if he had to introduce names in the fourth through seventh rounds on day three, like, I feel, I feel like, like, like he wouldn't have slept. Like his shirts would have been untucked. Like his hair would have been all disheveled. Like, like cigar in his hand, bourbon, <laughs> bourbon in the other hand, like flipping the off the fan. Yeah, flipping off the fan for booing him like fuck you guys, okay? You know how much I'm you know how much I'm worth? Fuck you guys. I can buy every M M&M and M I want. Yeah, 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 yeah. The jar is, is almost gone. I do enjoy candy. So fucking judge me. You fucking judge me on, on my M M&M and M eating? <laughs> like, I don't know. I just thought that I just thought that part, the Goodell <laughs> part outside of reading the picks was awkward. But other than that, I thought it was fun. Well, there was one more awkward part. I thought I, it seemed like every single draft pick that was happening. I know it wasn't all. Oh, of them, but it's God. Like every God. single draft pick that was happening. <laughs> Trey Wingo yes. had some sob story. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, 
like like every one of these guys was an underdog and and, and you're supposed to root for all 255 draft picks that happened. What like, was the one? The one Christ. was like, I don't remember who it was, but the one was like, Mother was a drug addict for 16 years. You're like, well, You do not need to put that in there. Like, that is, if you get a chance, go watch, go to Andrew Hawkins' Twitter feed at Hawk, and he did a video. He did like a mock video about that. And it, like, he's like, This guy's parents disappeared 15 years ago and he grew up with nothing and he's been in and out of like foster homes. And then like the guy like, is like, excuse me, no, my dad's right here. Like, this is my house that we live in Beverly Hills. Like, yeah. like yeah. there's but, my mom. My mom yeah. just came in the kitchen. She was yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. Go check that out. Uh, again, one more thing before we get, cause again, we are going to hit the draft with our special guest guest tonight a little bit. We're going to hit the Browns draft, but we did our, our garage beers mock draft, the inaugural garage beers mock draft last week. And I got to say it was pretty good. The picks were pretty spot on, but the pick of the week goes to Joey, who I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure Justin Herbert was getting taken in the top 10. I just, you know, it happens every year. Teams panic. I, I don't, I was not feeling that at all. And you made that pick, and I was a bit surprised by it. And then here come the Chargers, the Los Angeles Chargers, and they put Justin Herber up, and I was like, Joe, nailed it. You know what uh, it reminds me of is my my favorite draft, uh, 2014. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, number three overall in 2014, uh, the former Justin Herbert of the league, Blake Bortles, was drafted number three overall and i was like uh, but even then it's just like you know i don't know it was like a similar situation i thought i mean blake borders was really good in college but he wasn't a number three overall good it's like just what are you doing why are you taking the blake bortles and justin herbert in the top 10 but yeah that's my opinion you nailed it and uh, i think positionally our top 10 and it wasn't that we knew anything special uh the top 10 was pretty chalky Top 10 went pretty much like everybody kind of thought it was going to go. And defensive players went where you thought they were going to. The only thing that didn't happen, and it turned out to be the best thing in the Browns' uh, favor, was that there was kind of expected to be a run on offensive tackles, and it just didn't happen. The Giants took Thomas at number four, and the Browns get there at number 10, and they've got the rest of the three big-name tackles. And, uh, And my favorite part, of the whole draft is Brown centric. It's not every year, but my favorite part of the draft is they, it gets to the Browns and you could so tell that Jedrick Wills was their number one player on their board that they wanted, that they didn't think they were going to get that when it said the Browns are on the clock where every other team that the timer countdown would run from 10 minutes. As soon as it said the Browns were on the clock, boom, the pick was in like the Browns, they saw that Jedrick Wills didn't get taken and they were like, got it done. Like we don't need time. We're putting this pick in. And and they clearly, clearly got the guy they didn't think they were going to get. So big time win for the Browns. Hopefully. So anyways, yeah. let's get in. Let's get into our garage beers of the week. Uh, and so the way we determined our garage beers of the week this week is we asked you on our Twitter page at the garage beers and at our, uh, the garage beers podcast, uh, Facebook page, we asked you to grade the Browns draft. And based on the letter that you picked, we were going to pick a beer 
from either a brewery that starts with that letter, or we're going to pick a beer with the name that starts with that letter. And pretty overwhelmingly, you gave the Browns an A for their draft in total. So our garage beers of the week this week all have some beginning with the letter A. And we will start down in Nashville with Joe. Joe, what's your A garage beer of the week? My A garage beer of the week uh, is the ever common but so delicious Founders All Day IPA. Mm. Uh, the Session Nail. It is like, I don't mean this in the bad way, but I feel like it's like the Bud Lights of IPAs where it's not like <laughs> in your face hops, but it's like super tasty and flavorful. And I didn't find the right words to describe it. So I actually found this review online uh, and Tim online uh, says that he was <laughs> blasted by fistfuls of guava, overripe pineapple and bright tangerine zest. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's what I taste as well. <laughs> Fisted by guava. You got to love that. Uh, they call it all day IPA for a reason. You can drink them all day. So Joe, Oh, hold on. I know Chad's got something funny to say. Oh no. I mean, nothing says good Wednesday <laughs> night, like being fisted by guava. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe goes with the founders classic. I wouldn't call it the Bud Light. I'd call it just a solid, you could literally drink it all day. The Founders All Day IPA, Joey's first venture outside of Nashville in our Garage Beers of the Week. Chad, what do you got for your Garage Beer of the Week? Uh, well, I went to Sibling Revelry out there in Westlake. And it's a beer unlike any other. As you can see, look at that can art. That's just, it's the green jacket. It's the Augusta Peach Wheat Beer. Uh, it's it's a beer sibling revelry made uh, in honor of Masters Week. And it, it, it's light. It's refreshing. Like, it's something I would take to, like, if I was, like, to hang out, like, at the beach all day and, like, in, in the sun. It's something that's not going to, like, make me feel sick. It's just going to be, like, a nice, refreshing drink on a hot summer day. I, I love it. It tastes great. I wish I could buy more of it, but uh, sibling revelries over in West Lakes. And that's quite a hike for me to go get it all the time, but I would just like, so happen to be out there. What? It's like eight minutes for me. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and here's your gold uh, sticker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Humble brag. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it is a delicious beer. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would, I would drink this again. Well, there you go. There's your A beer for Chad. And so I'm going to, that brings me to my A garage beer of the week. And uh, I've got multiples. Uh, but the reason for that is I had my original. And about four minutes before we started recording, I decided to dump it all over my laptop uh, and all over my table. So my original garage beer of the week this week was going to be the Abomination Brewing Company, which the best cans come from Abomination Brewing. Uh, they're like kind of like a horror scene. Like if you remember the video game Doom, it always looks like a scene from Doom on the can. And the beer is called Only Hell Can Save Us Now. And it is a double dry hopped milkshake IPA with passion fruit, pink guava, and red raspberry with vanilla extract and caramel color. And the little bit that I got after I dumped it all over the table 
was flipping delicious. So Abomination Brewing is my official garage beer of the week, but I'm going to switch it up because I need a garage beer of the week. And uh, since I dumped that one all over the floor, I'm going to go to Fat Orange Cat uh, Brewery. And this beer is called All Cats Are Gray in the Dark. And I'm really excited for this one. It is a, um, it's a white stout. So it's not going to have that stouty color, but it's going to taste like a stout. So I'm going to pour this one. So we've got Founders. We've got Sibling Revelry. And we've got both Abomination and Fat Orange Cat. Those are our garage beers of the week. All right. And now we are so excited in our fifth episode of the Garage Beers podcast. We've been so lucky to have some incredible guests. Two weeks ago, we had Tim Elcorn, the radio voice of the Cavaliers. Last week, we had uh, Chico Borman from 92.3 The Fan. And this week, uh, man, I'm the, the, the little kid in me is just going ballistic because we are joined right now live on the podcast by Cleveland Browns legend, former number 22 defensive back, Felix Wright is on the podcast. Felix, welcome to the Garage Beers podcast. How are you doing tonight? I am doing good, and I appreciate it, and uh, ready to do a little Browns talking tonight, for sure. Yeah, we love it, and and we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, I think we're going to have a little bit of fun talking about talking about the Browns, the, the new Browns and the old Browns, uh, but we always start uh, with our Garage Beers podcast, and and the guys here, we already went through ours, but we're going to let you jump in. We we call it the Garage Beers Podcast because we're some guys hanging out, having a beer, talking sports. So if you were hanging out in your garage or your man cave, what would your garage beer, what would your beer of choice be when you're talking sports with the fellas? Well, if I if I if I sit out and drink a beer, which I do on occasion, it, it would have to be the Bud Light Orange because isn't that the isn't that the drink we had to open when the Browns won their first home game? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, Bud Light, but Bud Light I, Orange takes it even a step further. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, I was one of the guys that was out there putting some of those uh, those those beer refrigerators around the city. I put one downtown <laughs> and one out in the suburbs and we locked them up until the Browns won their first home game. And then boom, it opened up. I think it was a Thursday night or maybe a su- Sunday night game where we, I think we yeah. beat the Jets that night. Yeah, and uh, everybody game. was drinking, everybody was drinking Bud Light Orange. And, I, and uh, that's really the only beer I really like. Oh, hey, nothing right. wrong with that. <laughs> Did they let you keep one of the fridges? No. <laughs> Actually, oh, if you remember, they if you remember they they uh, they all sold out. They were on West Twenty Fifth there down in downtown Cleveland. There they went on sale uh, right after that, and they sold out. Yes, almost immediately. I mean, they had lines ten blocks long, trying people trying to. They had two different size uh, refrigerators, and uh, they sold out of them really quick. They they should actually start reproducing more of those if they sold like that, right? Man, one of the—I feel like it's one of the great, one of the great all-time promotions by Bud Light. But it, as a as a fan of the team, you don't want to be on the the end of the promotion because we don't want to give away beers every time we win a game. Like that shouldn't be as special as it was <laughs> right, for one right. game in the beginning of the season. Yeah, well, you know, but I know I had a couple Bud Lights. I think I think it was because the the year before I I don't know if we won a game or not so I think that was it was it was, was going to be a big celebration and I think it was right after Philadelphia had won the Super Bowl where Bud Light did that for them 
and uh, yes. and uh, and we just carried it on to Cleveland from there. So it was a good deal. All right. Well, cheers, cheers to you if you can find some Bud Light oranges, uh, <laughs> and uh, and we'll just we'll just picture you drinking one over there, talking a little sports with us tonight. Uh, so obviously. Um, Obviously, the draft just happened. We're going to get into that a little bit, but let's talk about you for a minute. Uh, All right, Felix. I got my first question. I got to yes. interject here. First question, uh, Felix. Have you seen Don Beebe, and do you know of any plans of him to upend you? <laughs> oh, no. No, I I actually haven't seen Don Beebe since that hit. And uh, actually, I was just watching I was just watching that uh, that game the other day because, you know, they, they got all kind of games, you know, from back in 89, 88, 87. And I didn't realize that was Don Beebe's rookie year, and uh, oh. with, with with that, so yeah, that was uh, that was it's kind of crazy. And and the crazy thing about it is that uh, it's his actually his football card where he's actually up in the air at the at the peak of this jump before I was getting ready to hit him. Uh, you know, but they didn't show the final result of that. They should have made that his and then made the final result my football card. But. Uh, there you are bearing down on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, uh, but no, we 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 never we never talked after that. I think after the game we kind of shook hands. I was happy that he was okay because he he landed uh, very awkward, but he he made it through it all right. And if you remember, he he kind of took a lot of a lot of big hits in his career. So I was just one of many. Yeah, especially back in that era, the slot guys, man. Woo-wee, going across that middle, you could have get your head taken off. Yeah, back in the day, that's the way you can do it. You can't do it nowadays, so it's a, it's a little different game now. Well, talk about, so 30-ish years later, how, do, like, how vivid, how many of those kind of plays, how vivid are those plays? Like, can you still feel that hit? Can you still, like, do you still feel the, the adrenaline, can you still hear the crowd when that happens? Only when I watch him on film. But uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, I remember the crowds, how loud they were. You know, we used to pack the stadium. We used to put 70, you know, 75, 80,000 people yeah. in the stadium every weekend. And and it's easy. That's easy to do when you win like we were. I mean, we were, you know, 12 and 4, 13 and 3, 10 and 6. So, we, you know, pretty much the whole time I was with the Browns, we had winning winning seasons. So we, we put the fans in there and then we created the dog pound and that even, you know, made it even, uh, <laughs> much more crazier, uh, as they say on, on the, on the pandemonium always in the, in the Cleveland Brown stadium. It was pretty awesome. Now, Felix, you know, let's get into your background a little bit, you know, born in Carthage, Missouri, uh, you know, what, what was, what was life like growing up? I mean, I know you were a, a, a star football player coming out of there. Were you highly recruited? You know, you, you, you ended up going to Drake university was, was Drake an only offer, you know, give give us a little insight into, into well, who Felix. You know, yeah, I, I grew up in a small town of about 11,000 people. Uh, not a lot going on. Uh, no professional ball players that came out of that area at the time. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. I, uh, from from a young age, I, I I always wanted to be a professional ball player, and you know it really didn't uh, you know it, it didn't matter what sport it was it, it either you know basketball or baseball or football and actually my my best sport it really ended up being baseball I was uh, an all state baseball player yeah. and just an all conference football player I almost mentioned you know all state <laughs> uh, 
it was it was pretty crazy. And then uh, in football, actually, I was wanted to be a quarterback, but I was uh, stuck with being a defensive back, a corner, and a and a wide receiver because the basketball coach, who was the athletic director, wouldn't let the football coach play me at quarterback because he said he's my point guard. So I got <laughs> a little hampered there. But uh, yeah, and then and then baseball comes in the spring. It's kind of the last sport of the school year which was my best sport and where I actually got a majority of my offers. So, you know, in Missouri there, we're in, in, uh, at the time when I was in high school, it was, it was just a big eight. And, uh, right. I got, uh, I got scholarship offers from all the big eight schools in base in baseball. And, uh, wow. and, uh, I actually thought that's what I was going to do coming, coming out. And then uh, after I finished up my senior year football season, you know, as that because because it's the first one that comes around, uh, you know, Drake University and a couple other smaller schools around there, uh, Missouri State was actually at that time it was called Southwest Missouri State and Missouri Southern State University, which was in Joplin, Missouri, just right down the street. I'd gotten small offers from them, but then Drake came and offered me a full scholarship, and uh, pretty much my mom and. Dad kind of made the decision that uh, we're not going to wait around for baseball, son. We're going to go on and take this full ride because, uh, <laughs> you know, of the of the of the four years I played high school baseball, and uh, I got hurt every year playing baseball for whatever reason. I don't know why that happened. Broke wow. wrist, I got stitches. Uh, it was just really crazy. Sprained ankles. I got hurt more playing baseball than I did football. And so when we got that offer from uh, from Drake. Uh, pretty much we said, I said, we're going to take this. We want to pass it up. And so at that particular time is when I uh, realized that, well, I'm going to go play some college football. We'll see what happens. And then we'll go from there. So it was a division one school, which was, which was cool. It wasn't a top division, but, uh, you know, we played the Colorado's, the Iowa States, the Nebraska's, uh, you know, which was considered big time. And then also, you know, we played the, New Mexico State, Indiana State, and some smaller schools like that. So it was, we had great competition, but we didn't get a lot of recognition in, in college. Uh, actually, in Drake University is in Des Moines, Iowa. So it was about six hours from my hometown, which was a good ways away. And um, I tell you what, it, it, it worked out well. I enjoyed it. Played a good four years there, and I actually started three and a half years in college. And uh, uh, and, you know, Drake was a smaller school. We were nestled in between Iowa and Iowa State. And obviously, you know, the Big Ten and the, and the Big Eight at the time was pretty big conferences. And we didn't get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, scouts coming our way. And so I was overlooked, you know, for the draft. Didn't get any invitations to any camps. So basically just kind of packed up uh, after I graduated and moved back to my hometown of Missouri and got a coaching and teaching job in Joplin, Missouri. And I did that for a year, and and with the uh, the athletes that I coached and and in uh, football, pretty much what they did, what I asked them to do, I did it with them. So just stayed in shape, not knowing really what was yeah. going to happen, and uh, just kind of did everything that they did, ran sprints with them, and stayed in pretty good shape, and actually got an opportunity to to go to a tryout camp and and. Uh, of about 600 ball players, and they picked three out of uh, of the 600, and I was the second name called, and that's kind of how it all started. Wow. So yeah. you story. you mentioned you know going to you mentioned going to Drake, 
you know, and I kind of looked up some of the games you played. You mentioned the Big Eight. Uh, one of the games that stands out, and, and I wonder how memorable it is to you, but, you know, go into kind of those Big Eight schools, those big stadiums, but I'm, I'm looking at your senior year, which you had a, a, a crazy good senior year. You were number two in the conference in interceptions. Uh, but you went, you went to Colorado and you just smoked them, right? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. We remember that game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That was, that was a great game uh, for us anyway. But uh, yeah, we, we went up there and just, uh, just it kind of manhandled them. And, you know, going to a big, big A school, you don't, you don't expect that coming from a small Missouri Valley conference school, but we had, uh, you know, we were well coached and, uh, we had we had good discipline, and I think we won eight and three that year. But yeah, I I remember almost exactly every play that we played. We we played a pretty picture perfect game, and uh, came out of there with a victory, and it was a, a big win for for Drake U because uh, you know we were already expected to really do much going into Colorado, but it worked out well for us. Yeah, it's 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 fun to look at. It seems like you were always part of just really good. Uh, defensive backfields. I look at your defensive backfield at Drake, and again, not names that most people are going to know, but but just looking at the numbers. Uh, so you know, you you had what six interceptions your senior year, and the only person in the entire conference that had more interceptions than you did your senior year was your teammate Greg Benton. Yeah, Greg Benton. <laughs> yeah, Greg. Uh, how many did Greg have that year? He had eight. He had eight. Yeah, oh Greg Benton, you know he he's he's my buddy. We still talk uh, uh, probably about a couple times a month. He uh, he actually lives in Cincinnati, and uh, oh, nice. yeah, and he's from he's actually from a small town in Missouri as well called Higginsville, Missouri, and it's just right outside of Kansas City. But yeah, it's funny we we went to Drake at the you know and uh, showed up the same day and and played four years with each other. And it's funny because he started off. He came to Drake as a as our starting running back, and uh, the funny story is is that uh, he he was he was our starting running back our freshman year. In the first game, the first play, they handed off the ball to him. He fumbled the ball, and that was the last time he played running back. So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was the safety. He was a safety was a from, the Knicks, from the from the Knicks game on for three <laughs> for uh, for three three seasons and and uh, ten games into his freshman year he was he became a safety and he played that position for the rest of his career. He yeah, probably would like least, that. pretty incredible. Yeah, pretty incredible that. I'll, I'll have to mention that when I talk when I talk to him again, I'll have to mention that he uh, <laughs> he had more interceptions than I so. But yeah, actually, off of that off, off of that team, uh, there was only two guys that actually made it to the to the NFL, and that was uh, myself. And then also, we had a center there. Uh, his name was Dennis McKnight. He played for the San Diego Chargers for a number of years. Nice. So he's a good guy. Yeah, he's an awesome guy. Boy, all these football players staying in Ohio. I wish the rest of the country would know that. I mean, we have this stigma. Like, come on, Ohio's not that bad. <laughs> No, Ohio's a lovely. I, in fact, I, a lot, I have a lot of people ask me, you know, why I decided to to stay here. Well, one, you know, I played my the majority of my career here and and built a house here on the west side of Cleveland and uh, just love the neighborhood, love the people of Cleveland, and 
after I retired, I, you know, I had to you know, make a decision whether I was going to go back to Missouri or stay in Minneapolis where I played my last couple of years, which is a nice city as well, but decided to come back to Cleveland and, and hang out here and, and, uh, be a part of the alumni, uh, where I was most known for as being a, as a Cleveland Brown. So it's, and it's worked out really well because, uh, staying around here has gotten me, uh, you know, got me still connected with the, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the Browns and being an NFL inspector for 20 years. It's been pretty cool. Talking with Cleveland Browns legend, Felix Wright, Felix, we just uh, talked about the interceptions you had your, your senior year, uh, at Drake. And, and that's definitely something that carried over into your pro career. 29 <laughs> total interceptions, uh, is that something, I mean, you led the NFL in 1989 with nine. What, what, what was it? You just had a nose for the ball. I mean, is that a skill you developed? Like what the, what, you were like Chris Carter, all he catches is touchdowns. You just caught intercept. Yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think, you know, and, and Dixon and Minifield were obviously the two best quarters I'd ever played with in the game. And they were very awesome guys. And, and I think the reason why we had so much success is because our head coach, Marty Schottenheimer, kind of force-fed us information. And we became students of the game. And uh, every time we went into a game, and I think that's the reason why we had so much success as a team, is that we knew our opponent like the back of our hand. So uh, we could anticipate plays. We, we knew in certain situations, certain formations, down in distance, some things they love to do. and. Uh, we used to be able to just go out there and play and react and not read and react, but just you know, react to certain formations and believe in it. And and I think that's the reason why we were able to make some plays. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm going back to the Browns, but I do not want to skip. Like we can't skip those couple years up in Canada, uh, which, uh, you know, ultimately was kind of that stepping stone that got you to the Cleveland Browns. So you wind up after, after you go back and you're doing some coaching and Joplin uh, and you're working out with, uh, with some of your kids, you wind up up in Hamilton, uh, which Browns fans should know pretty well, especially from recent uh, player memory, but you wind up in Hamilton and you play a few years up there. And, and again, it just, it, it, it continues. I mean, you're a, you're a two time CFL all-star Hamilton made it to the gray cup, didn't win it. But what was that experience like for you up in Canada? And uh, did you always, were you constantly working? Were you, were you like, were you, were you calling people constantly to try to get the NFL to notice? Like, or, or were you just out there playing? No, you know what? I was, I was content up in Canada. I loved it up there. Up there. I didn't really understand the game when I first got there, but quickly yet I had to learn. Actually, my first game up there was against Edmonton against Warren Moon. And it was a pretty crazy oh, game because. I was the, kind of the new guy on the block, and he was he was picking on me. And I actually uh, picked a, picked a, picked a, you know my first game there was against him. I actually picked a play and took it like sixty yards. But uh, uh, yes. you know, yeah, Warren and I kind of have a little thing going where every game I played against him, I've, I've uh, gotten an interception when he was uh, with the uh, Houston Oilers as well. So when I was a Ticat and when I was a uh, Brown and when I was a Viking, I had an opportunity to do intercept him so we always get about that when we see each other down to hall of fame game yeah what does he get to kid you about i mean it seems like you took the uh you took yeah. your fair share of that relationship 
Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But yeah, the the, uh, the three years I was up in Canada, I, I uh, had a wonderful time. And it's you know, for, as a defensive backer, a skilled position up in Canada, I mean, it's a hundred percent. Well, I would say a hundred percent, but it's about ninety to ninety-five percent pass. So, and you know, it's three downs or, or you're out. Whereas, you know, in the NFL, you got four downs or then you're out. But, you know, I, I fully thought that I was going to spend my whole career up there. I'd signed a, a one-year deal when I first got up there and it worked out real well. And they gave me a two-year deal. And uh, I was actually, after that last year in uh, 1984, uh, I was actually negotiating a new deal. And uh, we just couldn't come to the number that I thought that I deserved, you know, by going to the great cup and I think I ended up getting 12 interceptions that year. Uh, I think you had two like, picks in the great cup. Yeah. I had two big. Yeah. And I, I had uh, four picks in the, uh, in the Eastern final. So I had six picks and <laughs> oh six God. picks in the two years. So, yeah. Wow. So, so, um, I just couldn't come up with that, that, that number, but you know, how, how, how I became, uh, well, how I got my, my, uh, my opportunity was that there were some scouts that was up there scouting our quarterback in the uh, Eastern final. We, uh, we played in Toronto against the Toronto Argonauts. They were up there to watch uh, Dieter Brock. I don't remember if you guys remember Dieter Brock. He was, he was a quarterback up in Canada uh, for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And we traded for him to the Hamilton Tiger Cats and, and was there for a year. And they ended up, Signed him back with the uh, L.A. Rams and played a number of years and played really well, really well there. But anyway, he, uh, he yeah, he, uh, um, they were up watching him because he was probably the best quarterback in the CFL at the time. And as they were up scouting him, that was the game that I had had four interceptions in that game, which is the game that kind of catapulted me into the in the, in the NFL and, and, and got some eyes on me. And then, you know, going to the next week, going to the Grey Cup and getting another couple of interceptions, they're like, well, uh, you know, maybe we should, you know, start talking to this guy. And, and so, uh, you know, my agent, my agent up there, uh, Gil Scott, uh, uh, represented actually both, both of us, the quarterback and myself, and uh, just kind of included me in the talks with, uh, with some of the NFL teams. So we uh, actually had – Six teams after after those two games that uh, that had interest in me coming and visiting and signing with them and actually in the Cleveland Browns kind of outbid all of them and nice. uh, and even if, even if even if they didn't I would have probably ended up with the Browns because I really liked what Marty had to say to me so he he had told me that Felix I, I'd love for you to come sign with us uh, I'd love to have you here with us you're going to have every opportunity to play. And uh, he really meant it. So, and sometimes, you know, you get that talk where it's not really uh, truthful where you get an opportunity. But he says, if you're the best player, I don't care how much money you make. If you're the best player, uh, 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 you're going to play. And so he gave me that, that opportunity. And after about a year and a half of uh, backing up, I, you know, got that opportunity and stepped into the lineup. And once I got in the lineup, I didn't relinquish it until I retired. So it ended up working out really well. <laughs> All right, Felix. Well, I have two questions, one a goofy question, and then the next one a serious question. Uh, you know, as everybody knows, Canadian football is – there's a little bit of a, a few different rules. <laughs> yeah. In Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
just curious if you ever scored any rouges. Is that what it's called? A, a rouge? A rouge? Or did, is that like an, a rule that they did that they just implemented later? Yeah, I think yeah. I've never heard of that. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, I've so, never heard. Of, I've never. I've, I, I, I've never heard of that. I guess they just added it where like you. So so okay. So you a team can punt right. They kick it to the other team, and if it doesn't go all the way out of the back of the end zone, and if they think they're going to get tackled in the end zone, the player can punt it back to the punting team. <laughs> can punt it back to the punting team, and they just can keep kicking it back and forth. And if somehow they can get tackled into the end zone, the kicking team gets one point. <laughs> oh, jeez! It's a yeah, crazy I'm, rule. I'm, 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 I've, I've, yeah, I've never, I've never heard that. I, and I know that when, when, um, they do punt us and if you don't return it out of the end zone, you give up a point, but I, I've never heard that, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta return it, but you gotta read. Yeah. You gotta, I know when they kick the ball to you, you gotta return it out of the end zone. If you don't return it out of the end zone, the opposing team gets one point. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what that's called though. That's crazy <laughs> stuff up there. When you were, when you were playing up there, did they have the, was the rule still in play where the receiver could start behind the line of scrimmage and get the running start? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, they, they all, all four receivers could could get a running start, and by the time they hit the line of scrimmage, they're running full speed. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, how do you play corner when they're doing that? Well, well, you know, you just, you know, you just start working with them. I mean, you know, it, it kind of, kind of like the league. If you're playing off, and you, you got a little cushion there, and and, and it really all works the same because, you know, they, they only have a certain amount of time to get rid of the ball, three to four seconds. And so, you know, they're, they're still going to run the, the five-yard out to the post or the flag, you know, so it's all, you know, all comes down to really just still timing, you know, so. Me, that leads me into my next, my, my serious question is, you know, being the, that there are different rules in the Canadian Football League, what was the transition like was, to the NFL? Was it, was it tougher? Was it, uh, I mean, granted, it was the football you were playing, you used to playing before you got to Canada, but I was just curious what that transition was like. It was a little tough because, you know, when I, when I you know, up, up in Canada, we, we, you know, we, you know, the guys, the, the, the offensive linemen, the defensive linemen aren't as big because it's a passing game. So they're, they're a little slimmer. And, uh, you know, we don't do, you know, we don't we don't have to take on really the big pullbacks or the pulling guards because there's not a whole lot of running. It's probably about ten percent of it's running and about ninety percent pass. So we we were constantly in coverage, man to man coverage, zone coverage, and protecting against the pass. Whereas in the you know, whereas in the NFL, you know, it's a safety position, you gotta really, you know, you gotta set the corner. So you gotta take on those guards and tackles that actually come out to try and block you. And then, you know, you've got the big pullbacks that come as well. So you got to get up there and support and take, you know, take that contact to keep that play contained. So that was, that was kind of the big difference. But, you know, I, but I had, all, you know, also in college, you know, we played a lot of corner support, which means I had to come up and take on offensive linemen. So I just had to just kind of, you know, just get back into the groove of what I used to do. Obviously not as big, but. You know, I was a little bigger at the pro at the pro game than I was in the college game, so it, it went hand in hand. But you know, those those small guys usually get the the worst end of the deal if you t- if you go head to head. But you usually, work out some maneuvers there to where you can get a little advantage, where you you know to where you get a you know you you know give them a little juke and a little move to where you wouldn't have to take the full contact and uh, go around the guy. 
but there's sometimes where you had to just be mad up and just go straight at him and and do it. So I mean, you can't have it. You can't have any uh, scared football players out there. They ain't gonna work. So you you finish your three years in Canada. You get picked up by the Browns. You show up to Trent. You sign your contact contract. You show up to training camp as a kid, a guy from a small town who went to a small college, had great success in college, had great success in Hamilton. But what was that feeling like walking into training camp for the first time and 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 really, you know, realizing that you there you are in the NFL after that journey that you took, where just a few years earlier you were taking a teaching job. What was that feeling like? <laughs> Well, I, I it just it was uh, well. I, I I finally made it. This is my opportunity. That's kind of the way I looked at it because you know the you know the the college was an opportunity. Uh, get an opportunity to go try out for the Houston Oilers back in the day was an opportunity, and then going to Canada, you know, I, I took advantage of of that opportunity. So, you know, there wasn't anything that was going to be that was going to keep me from being fully ready. Or anything that came my way, and um, when I went in there, I just made sure that I was in the best shape I'd ever been, and and that I was going to do pretty much anything they asked me to do, whether it be special teams or you know play nickelback or, or play corner. But actually, my first uh, year and a half there with the Browns, I actually played corner and so it was it was more so you know, the more you can the more you can do the better, uh, and uh, that was kind of the mentality that I came in with is that, you know, first first and foremost, I just wanted to be on the team. I wanted to make the team. And then, uh, you know, everything else from that will, will fall into place. So that was kind of a goal coming in. And, uh, you know, and uh, just played reckless abandon and just, you know, just <laughs> did everything I needed to do. And it, like I said, it was, it was a dream that, that finally it came true. I, I, I kind of went about it a different way than the normal guys because usually they come right out of college and, you know, either getting drafted or be, you know, a free agency. I, you know, I went a different route by going to Canada, teaching school, going to Canada, then coming back. And so, you know, probably being a little older coming back, I think I was 25 at the time when I came, when I came to Cleveland, uh, I had a little experience, maybe more so than the, the rookies that came in, I had a couple of two or three years experience on them. So it gave me a little advantage as well. So, yeah, like you said, you've got, you spend your first year and a half in kind of a specialty role, uh, filling in here and there, playing some special teams. But let me see if I've got this right, because I want to say it's the first time Felix Wright made his name in the orange and brown. And I want to say it was, it was a game in Minnesota. And do I have this right? You basically blocked two punts and you also returned a block punt for a touchdown. Is that how that went down yeah i well you know the, the i i don't remember who it was against but i remember you know on special teams i played special teams and i think that was an 86 season i think i had came right. through i had came through and blocked the punt and uh Middlefield recovered it uh for the touchdown and then uh and then i guess uh i don't know if it was the next game or not but Middlefield came and we were actually on the same side. And Minnesota blocked the punt, and I actually picked it up and ran it in for a touchdown. But he, he picked, he, I blocked it, and he, he just he just fell all in the score. But I, I I actually had to run about twenty yards to get to, to the score. I was getting crap. Yeah, that's. That. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we, he we, took we, the easy we route. Had, we had we had good special teams as, as well. 
So yeah, when you're not in the starting yeah. lineup, you you got to be you got to you got to play special teams uh, until you until you earn your starting position. And uh, so you know you just kind of fulfill that the best you can, keep you around until you uh, get that opportunity to play on a regular basis. Yeah, so, yeah, that that was my start and kind of uh, how I kind of got my name out there and uh, and the, the, obviously the game that kind of turned everything around for me was. Uh, you know, the, the Monday night game, we came back off the strike in 87. That was the kind of the game that kind of put me on the map. And, uh, you know, it was, it was all gravy after that. Yeah. I mean, it didn't take long for the Browns, uh, you know, after you signed with them to find, uh, the success. I mean, just, just one game away from the Super Bowl, you know, in 86 and 87, you know, in, in your mind, which team had the best chance, to win that Super Bowl, was it the '86 or '87 team? Oh wow! You know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say because I think we're, I, you know, we had some of the records. I think we were thirteen and three, and then the other one was twelve and four, I think. But I, I, I mean, we pretty much had the same personnel. You know, maybe just a couple changes here and there, but. I don't know. I don't know because you know, Bernie was still our quarterback. Slaughter was still, you know, was was one of our, you know, was our wideout. Ozzy was still there, you know. So not, the personnel really didn't change much uh, for either team, for the for the Broncos or or the, or the Browns. But uh, I would say probably our best opportunity was the game that we had here, you know, on uh, you know when, when you know the drive, you know, because you know we were at home and. And, uh, you know, we were up by seven with two minutes left and, uh, you know, gave up the lead. So, you know, the two games that we went there, you know, they jumped out on us and then we had to fight back. And then, you know, at the, and then we fought back. And then at the end, we kind of gave it up, you know, out there because we played, I think we played, yeah, we played two AFC championship games out there and the first one here back in 86. Right. Yeah. But, you I know, know we you still, really, so we, I'm watching. I was just going to say, I'm watching the, I'm watching the Browns or I'm watching the draft and obviously John Elway as the GM of the Broncos. Do you have as hard of a time looking at him as I do? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, John, John's a pretty good old boy. I I like John. He, we used to go play in his golf tournament every year and I, uh, we used to have great times out there with him, but yeah, I know everybody, I know the the fans (laughs) in Cleveland can't stand me. I just, it's pretty funny. They just kept cutting to his office and I said, can you just show anybody else, anybody, but John Elway. <laughs> yeah. He had those yeah, Super Bowl trophies sitting there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I know. And every, it, it seemed like every time that Denver was in the playoffs, they always bring up those games. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We need to start, we need to start getting in the playoffs more so we can start erasing those, those, that's right. narratives of the fumble I, drive. I agree. No doubt. Who's the biggest trash talker on those teams? Like in the huddle who they are, or, 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 you know, in a tackle pile, Felix, who's the biggest trash talkers? Are you talking about for, on our team? Yeah. 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 Oh boy. You know, we had, we had, we had a bunch of guys that talked. I mean, we were, we were, we were, uh, I would probably have to say probably I was probably one of the top guys out there. <laughs> if you talk to Bubba Baker, my, 
and Michael D. and Terry, I used to really get fired up out there, especially if things weren't going well. Uh, I didn't uh, hold back, you know, because we had so much talent out there. But Bubba Baker, <laughs> he was uh, he was a talker. Uh, Clay Matthews was really quiet, surprisingly, but he he got the he got the job done. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously you got, you know, you got Hanford, Hanford, Dixon, and Frank Minifield that were, you know, the two corners that, uh, you know, they were the leader of the pound. So they, they, are, they, they, they constantly talk all the time. So <laughs> those two guys are probably, probably the top ones that, uh, that, you know, we got in the huddle, uh, you know, to, to keep everybody motivated as well. So when we think back, I think a lot, when the fans think back on, on those teams, you just think of think of the names. You think of the, you know, all these guys that you just listed, and Clay Matthews, and and Hanford, and and Minifield, and uh, and Bernie, and Webster Slaughter. Who are like? Who would you say is like an unsung hero of those teams? Who would you say is like the most underrated player from those teams? Well, underrated. Wow, I'd probably say, yeah, probably one of the most underrated players, probably Reggie Langhorn. Wow. Reggie Langhorn, uh, Mike Johnson. Yes. You know, they were vital parts of our defense, our offense. You know, they didn't get a whole lot of publicity, but they, they showed up every game and gave it their all. And, you know, you always heard about Webster. You always heard about Ozzy, right? You know, Ernest Biner, Kevin Mack. You know, you always heard those names. And, with a big name to Clay Matthews and Hanford and Minifield. Uh, you know, so yeah. So I would I would say, you know, like a, a Langhorn, he was kind of like an unsung hero, but he was he was he was he was probably the toughest receiver we had. And I'll, maybe you know, maybe a Brian Brennan. I'll throw Brian Brennan in there. Oh, well. there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh kind of like an unsung hero as well. He every time the ball came to him, he I don't think I ever saw him drop one pass. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, yeah. we go from the biggest trash talkers and I got to, uh, so now I got to ask you this on the other side as a defensive player, who was the toughest guy you ever had to try and bring down? Like, was there were just one guy you can remember that was just like, man, this guy is just, you know, like t- trying to tackle an Oak tree. You're like, who, who was the toughest runner? Well, you know, well, we, we, you know, back then we had a lot of tough, tough runners. I mean, yeah. we had a lot of big running backs, you know, like Christian McCoy, Barry Word. Those guys were huge. And then, and then you got the smaller guys and, and Barry Sanders, who oh. was you were you weren't really afraid that he was going to run you over. He was just very elusive. And then you had then you had the guy that was, you know, tall, slim, but he could run fast, and like Eric Dickerson. So you know, we had guys like that, and then, and then we practiced every day against. Ernest Miner and Kevin Mack, who I think was one of the best combinations in in the, in the league. But I would say probably the toughest guy I had to go up to was a guy named Gerald Riggs. He played for the Falcons. He played for the Redskins. He yeah. was just a load to break down. Very tough. Guy, we just took a lot of crap, and we used to get into it almost every game. It was Alonzo Highsmith, and finally when he came here last year, I was able to get him back and talk a little. Talk a little stuff to him. Yeah. So I, I was sad to see, sad to leave, see him leave this off season because I thought he was, a, I thought he was good at what he did and and, uh, but uh, we we had some good times the year he was here. All right. So we're going to transition into 
a little bit more current stuff, stuff with the draft, but I, I have to get your opinion on something that's controversial and something that I see people fighting over. Uh, people that remember that old school Cleveland Municipal Stadium original dog pound at the top of the hill, the little chain link fence with all the signs laying on the hill. Uh, there is a, and, and you being part of kind of that original dog pound crew, uh, there are some people that suggest that there really isn't a dog pound anymore. And as a matter of fact, they suggest that, that the Browns should kind of leave the dog pound back in municipal stadium and maybe move away from that. Do you, do you think we still have the ability to have an old school dog pound like that? Do you think they should keep that moniker? What's your feeling on that? Yeah, I think they. I think they should keep it. I mean, that's really when you know when 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 the when the players and you know come here. That's what they think of. One of the first things they think about. Man, I get to come to the pound. You know, and obviously, you know the Cleveland Browns uh, patented that. Uh, you know that that dog pound before actually Hanford and Minifield could get it done, so they're definitely not going to let that go. But uh, I, I think it's good for the for the city. It's something that uh, that you can kind of grab onto and and, uh, and 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 use it. Versus you know when the opponents come in, they definitely know that that uh, you know where the dog pound is, and and they like that experience. They think it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, so, and it's just like you know I think you know. The black, like the black hole, the, the the Raiders, they have that that certain area in their stadium to where, you know, they're they're famous. And actually, they said that they got to start it up by, you know, what Cleveland had with the dog pound. And I think I think that every city kind of wants that that you know certain where the fans can kind of be identified and and, so, and I, the leaders in that in in, in that. All right, so we're going to bring it last weekend, and I'm with you on the dog pound. I think uh, I think all it's going to take is a few winning seasons in a row, and you'll see the dog pound explode again like like we kind of expect. Uh, but uh, last weekend we had the draft. Uh, we had a, uh, a little bit of a rough year uh, last year, although much better than the previous couple of years, but still a little short of expectations. Uh, and uh, the team was a little bit all over the place, uh, and you can give credit to – whatever you want to on that, but they go into the draft. Their needs were apparent. We talked about it on the podcast last week. We talked about, you know, they have such a glaring need on that offensive line that make the easy decision and, and, and just go get one of those four big offensive tackles and fill that need. And that's exactly what they did. And then they go out and, and they fill the need at safety with, with Grant Delpit and they fill some linebacking needs. How do you feel uh, once the draft was all said and done, the Browns got their players, uh, you know, winding up with, with Donovan Peoples-Jones, the wide receiver from Michigan. Uh, what was your feeling? And, and, and you know, what uh, do you feel like they filled the holes they needed to? Uh, and do you feel like they're set up to have the success that I think a lot of people thought they were going to have last year? Yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think a lot of people were surprised how well we did in the offseason with the free agency pickups that we did. We filled some needs. And I think, uh, you know, during the draft, I think we, we did exactly what we needed to do. We, you know, obviously the number one priority was to find a, a tackle. And uh, I think we got that. It was either we we're going to get the kid from, uh, from Washington or we were going to get a young, uh, you know, a young guy out of the draft. And we went to route of getting the young guy out of the draft and hopefully he, he will have a, 
a good long career. And, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, we fulfilled, you know, a needed safety. We probably needed a couple of safeties, and we actually had some good sign, signings uh, in the offseason with that as well. I think they did a, an awesome job. And, and uh, you know, we really didn't know what to expect, you know, with the, with the new uh, regime coming in. You never do. But I think so far they've done pretty good. And uh, I think, it's, you know, although we've done really well with filling the gaps, we still got to do it on the field. And uh, so that still remains to be seen uh, because we, we, we obviously, by what we went through this season with having a very talented team, didn't produce on the field. So uh, it still remains to be seen if we can still put the, put the, the guys together in concert to where we, we get in the groove and, and win some football games. Yeah, I mean, go, going it was obviously a very important offseason for this football team, especially with all the talent. Uh, that they, you know, uh, acquired from last season into this season. You know, it, what do you think it was, Felix? Was it, uh, do you think that, te- that, that the team maybe bought into their hype a little bit? Was it a mixture of, was it coaching? Was it kind of a, a mixture of both? Like, why do you think such a talented team uh, uh, didn't have uh, the success that they, that, you know, that, that, their, that their roster kind of was expected to have? Well, I think it was, it was, it was, I think it was a lot of, I think it was all, all coaching, you know? Uh, wow. And I think, I think, I think uh, our, our, our coaches were in over their head, or, you know, our, our head coach was anyway, I think he was in over his head and, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't think he let the coaches coach. I think, you know, we brought in an offensive coordinator and he wouldn't allow him to do what he did. The reason why we brought him in is to, coordinate you know and uh i I think that uh i thought everybody thought that was a good move to to uh you know to promote freddie to uh, but i always kind of had my doubts is like well you know what he's been in the league for x amount of years i don't know how many exactly years he'd been in 10 years maybe but he'd never been a head coach and never really been considered as a head coach and how would he make a jump in less than a year from being just a position coach to a coordinator to a head coach. And I just thought it was really overwhelming for him. And I think it really affected Baker's play as well. So you're only, you're only, you're only as good as your quarterback. Uh, and, and you're only as good as how your quarterback plays. And our quarterback didn't play very well. And I think it had a lot to do with our head coach. Yeah. Certainly didn't look as confident as he did in his rookie year. Uh, Felix, who is your, your favorite offseason acqu- free agent acquisition, and who is your favorite draft pick this year, not named Jedrick Wills? <laughs> well, I think Del Del I, I really like him. I, you know, I like I like those LSU players. I I, I think that uh, you know those SEC players, also you know the players in the Big Ten as well. I think was uh, was my my favorite pick because I think he's a, a physical guy. I, I like the safety that's going to be physical that you can count on to come up and support and, and, and set the corner and make things happen. And also, and, and, and also if you can combine it with a guy that's going to go out there and, and, and get you the ball back with the interceptions. And if you remember last year, our safeties did not make any plays. I mean, no. consistent on a consistent basis. And so I think that's the reason why they're not here now is because they didn't get their hands on any ball. So, Hopefully we got some safeties that uh, are uh, are going to make some moves for us this year. 
uh, I think uh, probably the best move. Well, I don't, I don't, you know, we we had a lot of good moves, but the, the tight end that we brought yeah. in from, uh, I think it was it from Atlanta. Yeah, Austin. Hooper. I think that was really, really. I thought that was really a cool move and and top notch, top notch guy. And uh, I, I like the direction that we're going. Actually, and I, I got a chance to meet Stefanski at a Cavs game, and nice. a really cool guy. And it looks like a guy that's uh, going to do some things. But you know, obviously, we 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 won't know until we actually get out there and actually see it happen. Yeah. So let's talk. It's 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 going to be obviously with the two safeties they brought in, and Carl Joseph and Andrew Sendejo, a couple more veteran guys, although not old guys by any stretch. Now you put Delpit in there. You've got two super young guys as your, as your starting corners in Greedy Williams and Denzel Ward, your area of expertise is in that defensive backfield. Uh, just talk about the potential mm-hmm. that, that defensive backfield has. I mean, Ward is a, has been a pro bowler already at this point in his year. Greedy Williams, I think, I don't think people really saw what he can do last year. And then you add Delpit, Sandejo, and Joseph. Talk about the potential of that backfield. Yeah, they got a chance to make some plays. They're very, very athletic guys. You know, our corners, our corners have got to get stronger. They got to get stronger and a little bigger. I feel, uh, you know, Denzel, you know, he's pretty fragile. So I think he's just got to get in the weight room and and uh, and uh, you know, just stay healthy. And uh, gre- and greedy, we just need to work on his tackling. He didn't do a very good job with tackling last year, uh, so he's got to improve there. But. Uh, I think our two, our two corners need to they need to play a little better than they played last year, uh, but uh, they got a lot of potential. They're young, and uh, I just I, I what I really wished is that they would bring Hanford Dixon or Frank Minifield in to help 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 along with that position. Sure, and I think they can teach him a lot. What about Felix Wright? So, well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> it'd probably be a conflict of interest. Conflict of interest because I'm an NFL inspector. That's true. So I probably couldn't. Yeah, so I got to. I got to stay. So I got to stay. I got to stay neutral. So yeah, we got to keep yeah, everything probably above would the table. Work on yeah. Oh yeah, no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. But 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 uh, but the corners are are really the really the important, probably the most important position on your defense because they control a lot. If they can lock down and and uh, take those receivers out of the game, it helps the defensive line. And vice versa, but uh, if you if you got guys like that, then you can, you know, that can cover, then you can send that that extra safety, that extra body in there to help with the the rush, and it makes it makes a big difference. You mentioned it before uh, when we were discussing just kind of the differences in the NFL now, the difference in how rules are called, the difference in how you're really, you know, I feel like even if you make a clean hit, if it's a big hit in the NFL it's going to get flagged. Even if it's clean, if it's violent, it's going to get flagged. How often do you think, of, when you're watching the game, how often do you think of that uh, as, as a former corner uh, who liked to be physical and, and lay some pretty big hits yourself? Uh, how, how, how often do you think about what life would be like? How would you be able to adapt in today's game? Just how different is it? It's, 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 it's a lot different. We, we were taught from from grade school to you know you know put your face mask in between the numbers and 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 wrap and, and wrap you know and wrap and just try and just dominate you know so uh, 
they just have to teach differently now. And, it, and it, as you can tell, they can't they can't really go up and do that anymore. Put the you know put the helmet through the numbers or their face mask through the numbers anymore. You use your shoulders, and you right. see a lot more missed tackles. You see a lot. It's, it's just make, I think it just makes the game a lot sloppier. Uh, because you know, there are some guys that uh, you know that they will come up and lay the wood. You know, like a Jamal. What's his name? Jamal Adams. I, I love yes. the way he plays the game. Uh, he comes up and sticks. And also, they got the kid from uh, that was in Seattle. That's now at Baltimore. Uh, he's he's an, he's a guy that will come up and knock you out. Uh, also, the safety from uh, Kansas City, Mayhew. I, I love the way those guys play. They they're probably the closest to old school that you can get. They'll come up and uh, and give it to you and give you all they got, regardless of if they're going to get a, a flag or not. So, uh, my 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 follow up question to that, uh, or to kind of our conversation about the Browns and and the current Browns. So you've got your quarterback, you've got a monster defensive lineman on the edge, you've got monster defensive lineman on the interior. The linebacker has some question marks because it's really young. Uh, although I'm a bit of a fan of guys like Mac Wilson and, and Taki Taki. I like those guys. I think they can develop. But is this, is this, I don't know, as a former Brown, have you done that thing that all of us Browns fans have done in recent years where, where we've bought in and told ourselves that the Browns are going to win 10 games and then they go out and win two. Uh, and do you think <laughs> this is finally that year? Does it look like everything's coming together under Stefanski and Barry and, and all these pieces is this the year that finally, since your era, since your era of being a Browns fan, that we're we're gonna just we're gonna really put this whole thing together? Well, I I I, I don't know because it, uh, it, it I think it comes down. Well, it's gonna come down to how well our quarterback plays, and uh, he, he 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 had a great first year. And then a terrible second year, so we got to see what this year is going to be. It's all going to really depend on him, uh, which, which you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of hard to it's, it, it's hard. A quarterback is a very hard position to play, and uh, I hope that I hope that he's got his mind right and, and going through uh, you know a different a different coordinator a different system. It's going to be it's not going to be easy. So I'm I'm hoping and praying that this is going to be the year to where we can you know win a minimum of eight games. Uh, but it, like you said, it's all going to come down to how well he plays. And I, I think this is his make or break year. You know, if he he plays well and does what he what we uh, are expected of him, he's going to have a long career. And, uh, and if he doesn't, you know, I think he's just going to be a career backup. So. Mm. Wow. I think I, 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 yeah, I think the, I, I want him to be successful, but that's really what it's all going to come down to. Uh, as far as we like picking a record or how well we're going to play, you know, it's, it's kind of hard because like I said, last year, I thought we'd win. I thought we'd win at least 10 games last year. I kind of predicted 10 and six. I was really disappointed with the six and 10 and we had, we had opportunities there late in the season to still make the playoffs, but just couldn't pull it off. And, uh, but uh, I think I think uh, you know even this year we we we'll we'll we'll, have, we'll we'll be better prepared. We have better personnel, so we, we should be much better on paper. But like I said, you know the, you know we still got to go out there and produce and get it get it done. And now with you know with what we're going through with this uh, 
you know, this virus and pandemic, you know, with not getting the not getting the time together that we need to with a new coaching staff is going to make a difference as well, too. Yeah, great point. Yeah, certainly hope is the year because especially for Baker Mayfield, I mean, with the with the personnel that Andrew Barry has added now, it, it, there's there's it, it seems like this is a no excuses type of year for Baker. It's it's kind of a put up or shut up year. So hopefully that happens because <laughs> No one wants to uh, start over at square one again from quarterback. Oh, God. <laughs> or coach. But, yeah. GM. Yeah. No. Uh, but um, anyway, Felix, so life after football, you know, it, it seems like has uh, treated you pretty well. You know, you run a uh, consulting firm for uh, college athletes uh, into their professional athletes. What's 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 the first piece of advice you tell someone uh, coming uh, tell an athlete coming out of college going into the pros? Well, it just that he, you know, just that he's, he's got to be under control, and that he, he, you know, and I, I love dealing with the with the the financial end of it, to where just he's helped them understand where they're at, uh, and and most of the guys I deal with are guys that really came up with nothing, but they have a lot of people around them, mm-hmm. and so basically my job is just basically just kind of manage the people that they got around them, and just uh, just. Uh, kind of work and, and, and instill into them that, you know, that we can take care of the people, but we have to do it in moderation. And which is really the most important is that, is that, uh, you know, we just make sure that the, that you're in good position. You have to be in good position before you can put anybody else in good position. And that's kind of the, kind of what I kind of echo to the guys when they first come out, actually I had a, a you know, a, a first-year guy that just uh, got a new uh, – uh, actually, he's going into his third year. that has got a, a new deal and and just kind of he's kind of explained to him where he's at and, uh, you know, and uh, put that future budget together for him just to make sure that, you know, this is where you're at and this is what you need. If you don't want to work with anymore, this is what you're going to have. Just always keep them abreast of what they need to have uh, 100% of the time. So that's, that's kind of what I do, just – uh, too many guys from from the beginning just uh, kind of go through their money, and uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, you you know the stories that you've heard, even even like an Adrian Peterson that you hear some yeah. some horror stories yeah. of what he's kind of what he's going through right now. I just kind of use those stories just to kind of educate my guys on look, we we don't want to be in this position, and this is what we should do. It's, it's your money. You can do what you want to do with it. But if we do this, then you should be set for the rest of your life. Like when I played, we made decent money, but we didn't make money to really last us for the rest of our lives. But to the money, the money that these guys do now, uh, they truly can. And so I just help them kind of kind of understand where they're at, and hopefully they'll listen. And uh, I mean, obviously they're gonna they're, there's going to be some hard knocks here and there, but. Uh, but uh, the less they go through, the better. Well, and you, I'm sure you have so many personal stories of, of people that you know and, and friends of yours. Like you said, the money in your day, not that it was bad money, but it wasn't the money that these players are making now. And, and I think, uh, you know, the fan that's just quick to judge doesn't realize how hard that can be to be a 21, 22-year-old kid who has $5 million dropped in his lap who doesn't come from that right. money. And how easy it is for that mm-hmm. money to just disappear. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's an incredible job that you've decided to take on, and, and an incredible. It's been what twenty years that you've done this with your company, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I love I love it. it. It's something I enjoy. It's something that I really uh, love talking to the guys with. And you know, every every year they have a, a rookie a rookie dinner with the with the alumni, and uh, it is actually for us to actually talk to them about you know that situation, you know, the money situations and what they should and shouldn't do and what to expect. And it's, uh, it's, it ends up being pretty, pretty good conversations. And the rookies usually ask a lot of questions, which is good uh, to kind of understand well, what they're going to go through. Yeah. That's, so. that's great. Well, Felix, I think we're going to wrap up with you here. We very much appreciate it. You gave us some awesome stories. I love diving in to your time back at Drake. Uh, you'll have to, share with some of your buddies back there uh i can't believe you yeah no doubt no doubt yeah i'll be talking i'll be talking to greg <laughs> yeah. like every, every other week and i didn't realize he had more interceptions than i but i'll, I'll uh you know he, he'll like to hear it. <laughs> yeah. you know maybe wait for yeah. maybe wait for his birthday to remind him of that <laughs> actually actually it's funny his birthday was just two weeks ago oh, there you go so, well it's a, yeah. it's a belated present yeah. Yeah, it's a belated, belated present. Well, we so. we really appreciate you coming on, uh, Felix. Uh, fans, uh, go follow Felix. He's on Twitter. He's put some great stuff on Twitter at Felix Wright Twenty Two. But we really, really appreciate your time. Uh, we definitely crack Roger beer to you. Cheers, and, and thank you so much for joining us. All right, buddy. I appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Hi, right, Felix. Go Browns. And that was one of the. Great Browns cornerbacks, number 22, an iconic number 22 for the Cleveland Browns back in the 80s and early 90s, Felix Wright. And again, we're so grateful for him for popping on with us. Felix Wright, talking about loving him some Bud Light and Bud Light Orange. Uh, that was that was one of my favorite parts of that whole interview. He goes to the Bud Light just because he associates with the Browns. And so, of course, that's going to be one of my favorite beers. Plus, when he played for the Browns at Old Municipal Stadium, that stadium smelled like stale Bud Light. So it made a lot of sense. (laughs) Oh God, those old troughs in the bathrooms, uh, the the spilled beer all over the place. That was a time boys. That was such a time. It was a golden age. It was a golden age. I'm like, I remember, like, I remember when the Browns and Steelers, it was a rivalry. Like we would be walking up from the tailgate lot and my uncles would be throwing firecrackers at the feet of Steeler fans. Like it was, <laughs> like, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was what a time to be alive. I mean, granted, I, I was still pretty young when the Browns were good. So I don't remember a ton of those eighties teams. Like, I mean, like I was, I was, I was, four and five when those two, when the drive and the fumble happened. So I don't right. totally remember it. I, I just remember it happening. And then my, you know, my, my dad and my, his buddies being all pissed. Uh, and I didn't really know why, but uh, I was alive. I just don't remember a ton of it. Yeah. I just, I, I spent so much time at that stadium. I was young too, but I spent so much time there. We, we went to so many games, Browns, Indians that I can still smell it. Uh, and I, and I still remember those ramps and those walkways and, and man, how cool is it to, uh, to have been joined by Felix, uh, Felix Wright, who made so many big plays in that stadium for, for years. Uh, and he was such an integral part of those teams that, that really outside of those Browns teams in the fifties and sixties, that not many people remember the true most successful Browns teams. Uh, Felix Wright was an integral part of of one of the great eras of Cleveland Browns football. So we cannot tell you how much we appreciate him being on. He brought brought great insight from his days in college. 
uh, and helped us break down the draft in the Browns now. And, and, uh, and I hope he's right. I hope, I hope the Browns filled their positions. We, we all seem to agree. We think they did. They did what we asked them to do. Not that we asked them to do, but what we begged for on the podcast, they made the easy choice at number 10, they got their tackle and they, and they went from there. And I think they had a great draft and, and they're built for success. So enough about the Browns for a minute. We're going to move on to uh, one of the great, maybe ESPN. I, I personally, I think it's probably ESPN's greatest documentary they've released, and it, and we're only forty percent of the way through it. But let's talk about the Last Dance for a minute, and it's very appropriate for us, obviously being a Cleveland-centered podcast. Uh, that this week, this last week on the Last Dance Michael Jordan documentary, there was a pretty good focus on. The shot. You know, we just got done with Felix Wright, and he was part of those the fumble and the drive teams. Well, this week on The Last Dance, they focused on the shot, and uh, it was pretty interesting to hear the perspectives of a lot of those Bulls players, and then all of a sudden you bring Ron Harper up in the middle of it saying, I was in that huddle, and I told Lenny Wilkins to let me guard Jordan and he put Elo on Jordan, and and man, Ron Harper to this day isn't happy about that. Uh, but I have my gripes with that. What were your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's funny too. But we had, uh, you know, again, I work at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, and we brought in. It was Harper wasn't there, but we brought in Larry Nance, Craig Elo, um, Craig Elo, Brad Doherty, uh, and, and Price to talk about that moment. And you know, Larry Nance. Uh, initially took the blame for it. Uh, you yes. know, he, he said, he, he said, you know, it, it, I, I, Lenny put me on Jordan initially to, to face and I took, and he put a move on me at half court and I took the bait and he said, if I would have just let him go, I, w- I would have been fine. Cause we knew he only had time to dribble once and put up a shot. And uh, that was pretty much it. Uh, you know, Larry Nance wasn't a terrible defender, but you know, when it came to Ron Harper uh, guarding Jordan, I mean, Jordan, when Jordan himself says they should have put Ron Harper on me, like if I'm Lenny Wilkins, they should have put no, Ron Harper on no, me. Okay. You put Ron okay. Harper I, on I, Michael Jordan. I, I got a gripe with this. I got a gripe with this. And Ron Harper's one of my, I had a poster of Ron Harper in my basement as a kid. Ron Harper's one of my all-time favorite Cavs. But it's not a good look for Ron Harper right now because Ron Harper got torched that game by Michael Jordan. Michael yeah. Jordan put up like 40 points on Ron Harper in that game. Right. So, so for him to come out in this documentary and be like, oh, they should have put me on Jordan. I would have, what were you, he torched you all game. Like, and, and that's not, it's not even like a, it's not even, I'm not saying anything bad about Ron Harper. Jordan torched everybody, but to, to kind of come out 30 years later and be like, oh, if they would have just put me on Jordan. Uh, no, I'm not buying that. Well, obviously Jordan had too much respect for Harper because I mean, because he was going to, I mean, he said they should have put Ron Harper on me, but at the same time, Larry Nance uh, shouldn't have taken a bait. I mean, that's really what it came down to. If he, if he would have just let Jordan, you know, get the ball at the top of the key, I think things would have turned out better for him. And, you know, poor Craig Elo, he just had this stigma that carried with him through years and years. And it, you know, finally, uh, you know, Larry Nance takes responsibility in his agent. <laughs> years later. So 30 or 40 years later, Craig Elo is finally like, 
you, it's just, oh, I can rest now. <laughs> oh, it's so not fair, too. I mean, it's so not fair. Craig Eagle played 15 years in the NBA. He was a really good basketball player. The guy could shoot and score. And <laughs> Craig Eagle was a very good defender. So yeah. this, this, I don't know. I, 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 as a lifelong Ron Harper fan, as somebody, one of my all-time favorite Cavaliers, I think, I, I think Ron Harper came off pretty poorly in that. I think, I think, uh, don't don't act like you didn't get torched all game and that they should have put you on Michael Jordan and you were going to stop him. Uh, but I agree with you. And, and Nance, you know, it makes sense. They should have made Michael Jordan go to half court and catch the ball and heave a shot from there. But he bit. But this documentary has just been uh, it's been great. It's been uh, just the inside look at, you know, it starts with Scottie Pippen. Dude is one of the great players in the NBA at the time, and he's like the 137th paid, like top paid player in the NBA. And and the, the Bulls are just going to do nothing about it. And like what it just shows you that sometimes these people in these positions of power, Jerry Krause, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, like what's the, what's the problem? You're winning titles. Pay Scottie Pippen and keep Phil Jackson. And that team wins probably three more titles. But instead. Sorry. Arbitrarily, arbitrarily, he's like, no, Phil Jackson's gone. Like, why? What? How? Like, what kind of Napoleon complex do you have to have to, to break up the Bulls and to do it knowingly? Yeah, to go off your first point, uh, I have no idea how, like why they underpaid Pippen. And you know, and I posted about it earlier in this week. It was clear to me, w- without Pippen, I-, I don't think Jordan wins anything. I I, I really don't. M- maybe a title. Maybe he carries the likes of Tony Kukoc and Luke Longley. Well, I, uh, to, yeah, to I agree title. with you. He doesn't win six. He doesn't yeah, win I mean, six. For sure. I don't think he wins six. But you know, Pippen was so undervalued in that organization, but then, yeah. And then on the other side, I completely agree with you on Jerry Krause. It just, it, you oh. know, it just comes out of nowhere. I mean, swallow your pride and, and be, you know, be the next Celtics or, or Lakers. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what you could have been. If you would have, if you would have just, just shut your mouth and, 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 and I don't know, go, go buy a, 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 a an F, 3,500 if you have that big of a Napoleon complex. Don't break up one of the greatest teams that ever, you know, that that, that ever took the floor. <laughs> oh, it's absurd. It's it's absurd. But the, the storyline of Phil Jackson was great. And you forget what a good basketball player he was, but you also forget that that he was a Dennis Rodman. He was, he was an enforcer, and he was a wild man, Phil Jackson, in his younger days. The Dennis Rodman stories were great. Uh I'm very much looking forward to where this documentary goes, but yeah, bringing up the, the calves, the shot and, and, and reemphasizing. Right. And now I've got to bring as a, as a good calves and LeBron James fan, I've got to bring LeBron into this because we have to do that. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me is the criticism that LeBron gets for some of his, uh, when the heat lost to the Mavericks and he didn't perform very well in the finals, when, when, the Cavs got beat by the Warriors several times when they got swept by the Spurs, whatever. Michael Jordan goes out and he scores 49 and 62 points in two games against the Celtics early in his career in the playoffs. 
the Bulls get swept. But like we talk about that like like the Bulls didn't get swept. Like Michael Jordan's this icon, and he is a total icon. But like if LeBron James put up 49 and 62 points in a series and the Cavs would have got swept or the Heat would have got swept or the Lakers got swept, all you would talk about is how LeBron was either selfish, how LeBron didn't lead his team to wins. But when Jordan did it, it was, oh, my God, legendary Jordan. Like, okay, come on. Like, I'm tired of that. Well, here's what the pro-Jordan argument would be. He was 6-0 and in the finals. In those years, he didn't make it to the finals. So he he just made it to the to the to the Eastern Conference whatever I can't I can, whatever it was final first round or, he got swept out of the yeah, first round yeah swept out of the first round so that's that's the main like the that's the main pro Jordan argument that people have is oh when he did make it to the finals he you know he he was six and zero oh, and and he has six rings I just I don't I don't like those arguments you know LeBron. Uh, is is LeBron the goat? Is Jordan the goat? Or is is Brady the goat? Yeah, fair. I, yeah. I, I I don't I I don't buy that because you just can't compare eras. These professional leagues, the the game has changed and developed so much year like era by era by era. It would it would just be unfair. Like you you have no idea. Like like all these people who go oh would I would love to see LeBron play back in play back in in, in the physical era he would have been he would have been such a baby he would have he would have been well how do you know that how do you know that if LeBron had the 80 if LeBron if LeBron had the mentality that they had back in the days when you could just basically beat the shit out of each other and and at and, his size was, yeah at his size with no with no recourse I, I, I don't know LeBron, you know, and they LeBron, never LeBron. do Chet. They never do the reverse of that. They always do. Yeah. Oh, what would he have done back then? Okay, Bill Lambeer would never see the NBA now. No, like no. prime Bill Lambeer would never have gotten off the bench. Like no. never, never have gotten off the bench. And if they did get off the bench, those guys back in that era, they would have been. They would have fouled out in the first quarter, like before <laughs> yeah, the first yeah. half ended. Yeah. Just because, just because they'd be throwing elbows and they would be clotheslining people and and, and, and body slamming people, you know. So yeah. I just I I think there's I think there's generational goats. Like I think, in, in my opinion, like I think LeBron is the greatest of this generation, and I think Jordan was certainly the greatest yeah. of his generation. Agreed. And Agreed. Also, and also uh, to the same token, Jordan and LeBron are two completely different players. Oh, two yeah, completely way, different way. players. LeBron is 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 more of an all-around offensive player, okay? You know, Jordan was was just Jordan the 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 fairer comparison to Jordan was Kobe. Okay? Cuz Kobe and Jordan were both scorers, okay? Correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they would get a few rebounds and a few assists here and there, but they they needed the ball in their hands because they were scorers. LeBron Correct. LeBron was more of an Oscar Robinson, Magic Johnson type player. You just can't compare any of these. Rant over. Sorry. I, I went off over. on a little bit there. <laughs> Well, listen, I think I think there's so much more good stuff to be had. Obviously, the baseball's coming and the, the separation is coming. But if you haven't watched The Last Dance on ESPN, watch The Last Dance. It is it is so well done and it's so in-depth with those teams. And you get so many good insights from, from all those players, Jordan and, and Isaiah Thomas and Pippen and Rodman. And, uh, man, it's... I've, I've watched all four episodes. I feel like it hasn't even been an hour total uh, the way it flies by. So 
we'll see what more we have. And and again, anything to anything to just keep sports on the mind is a beautiful thing. So uh, having said that, uh, I think well, we're going to wrap it up. So again, our our thanks, big time thank you goes out um, to Felix Wright, uh, Brown's all-time great cornerback, Felix Wright, for joining us uh, on the podcast tonight. Uh, Joey and Chad, thanks to you guys. This was great. We're going to leave you with – we're going to try to leave you with some positive things going on in the quarantine era, era. And so I hope you like this gentleman who decided, you know what? I got all these I got all these Dr. Seuss books in my house. I need to set them to Dr. Dre Beats. And I need to wrap these books. So enjoy a little Dr. Seuss, Dr. Dre mashup as we head out. We'll see you again next week. But uh, for all of us here, thank you so much for joining. Please like us. Please follow us on our social media at The Garage Beers. uh, And like and subscribe. And uh, we'll see you this time next week. Cheers, everybody. Okay. Take it slowly. This book is dangerous. Fox socks, box knocks, knocks in box and fox in socks. Knocks on fox in socks in box. Socks on knocks and knocks in box. Fox in socks on box on knocks. Chicks with bricks come, chicks with blocks come, chicks with bricks and blocks and clocks come. Look, sir, look, sir, Mr. Knox, sir. Let's do tricks with bricks and blocks, sir. Let's do tricks with chicks and clocks, sir. First I'll make a quick trick, brick stab. Then I'll make a quick trick, block stab. You can make a quick trick, chick stag. You can make a quick trick, clock stag. And here's a new trick, Mr. Knox. It's called socks on chicks and chicks on fucks. Clocks on clocks on bricks and blocks. Bricks and blocks on clocks on blocks. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.